this focus on loving dangerously. And no finer example do we have of that than the very life of Jesus. And we're walking through Mark's gospel uh, through this fall as we continue on this journey. Now, some of you who perhaps have read the title of this message will kind of automatically be transported back to a, a television show that was kind of back around 2001, I guess it was, by the same name. Anybody remember the Fear Factor, the TV show? Yeah, okay. Pretty gross, wasn't it? I mean, practically every youth pastor on the planet duplicated the Fear Factor, either at a youth retreat or maybe uh, some weekly youth meeting. Well, this isn't that. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to require that you eat bugs or worms or whatever, okay? Fear gets kind of a, a bad uh, rap. I mean, it can, be, it can be a good thing, a healthy thing. Like, it can keep you from swimming in shark-infested waters, right? At least most of us with half a brain wouldn't go into shark-infested waters. It can heighten awareness of your surroundings. Fear forces you to examine the real or the imagined barriers that are holding you back from achieving your goals. Sometimes, fear can point out the inadequacy uh, that we have or, or the tools or the, the skills or the, the abilities that we lack to pursue a, de a desired course of action. I mean, it, it isn't always a bad thing, you know. In fact, someone has done a, a study the entire Bible and has found the phrase either do not be afraid or fear not 365 times, like one for every day of the year. And that'll preach, and many have. First, John 4, 18 reminds us that perfect love drives out fear. But the scriptures also speak of the fear of the Lord over 300 times, as a matter of fact. In Solomon's Proverbs, he declares that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But, but this fear is about so much more than respect or reverence. Jesus states, probably stronger than anybody else, this word, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Paul says this, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and of spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. John Wesley, the, the founder of Methodism, puts it this way, fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. It's clear from these passages that fearing God is good because it saves us from caving into our own sinful nature. That's why hearing that someone is God-fearing might even make us trust that person more. You know, if they fear God, they're more likely to keep their word, perhaps, or treat others with kindness. It's interesting that in Romans 3, this is a classic chapter on sin, Paul says in conclusion of a lengthy and rather detailed description of the unrighteous, he says, and the way of peace they have not known, the unrighteous. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So how does fear of God, who is perfect love, take away fear? 
William uh, D. Eisenhower puts it this way in an article that once appeared in uh, Christianity Today, and the article is appropriately entitled Fearing God. He, this is just a portion of it. Unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce Him to the world's equal. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions, so he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment of my sin, but forgives me nevertheless. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. Now, there's an interesting dynamic at play in the passage that the Mowers uh, just read for us a few moments ago. If you have your Bibles open to, to Mark 9, starting at verse 30, I recommend it. I'm speaking here of the relationship between fear and faith. But let me just back it up a bit to that very first verse in the reading. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. Now, other phrases, other versions say they were on the way. Seems, you know, pretty normal language, right? Not necessarily um, all that particularly meaningful. Well, here's, here's the significance of this. Because again, this feeds into how Mark viewed the gospel, the life and ministry of Jesus. They weren't just passing through Galilee, you see. They were on the way, as other versions put it. On the way, the way of Jesus culminating eventually at the cross and toward the path of discipleship defined by Jesus' own life of service and death. See, Mark's filters were that, Jesus' journey to the cross, his passion. They were on the way. And that matters because it speaks into what we want to consider this morning. You see, from about Mark chapter 8, verse 27, all the way through Mark chapter 10, about verse 45, the predominant focus is Jesus' predictions of his passion. In fact, he doesn't walk his disciples through it once and not twice, but he does it three times. And each one of those predictions contains the same three elements. The first one being Jesus' prediction of his, of his uh, suffering and rejection and death and resurrection. He predicts his passion. The second is the disciples' response often with misunderstanding or confusion or the inability to accept his message. And then the third piece of that is Jesus giving instructions on discipleship. In every one of those presentations, you could find all of those elements. What we've just heard read is the second of these three clusters of prediction, response, instruction. Now, did you notice in that the, what was read that the disciples didn't ask Jesus any questions in response to his prediction of his impending crucifixion because, you see, they were afraid. They were afraid to ask him. And then what follows seems even more odd. The next thing we know, 
They're talking about securing their place of position in the coming kingdom. I mean, really? What on earth does that have to do with the passion of Christ? Well, as it turns out, you see, this isn't all that odd a response if you consider that this is what fear does. It both paralyzes and it drives you to self-preservation, to look out only for yourself. This gospel writer, you see, contrasts faith and fear in other places in this book. Mark 4.40, after Jesus stills the storm that had terrified his disciples, he asked them, why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Mark 5, about verse 36, as Jesus restores Jairus' daughter back to health, he tells the distraught father, who had just been told his daughter was dead, he said, don't fear, only believe. See, doubt, it appears, is not the opposite of faith. Fear is. Or at least the kind of fear that paralyzes, that distorts, that drives you to despair. Fear is a, is a really interesting emotion. I mean, in my 66 years uh, on this planet, I cannot recall a season in our nation's history, in our society's history, more easily influenced by fear. Now, keep in mind, I lived through some scary times. You know, I was a little girl, but I remember vividly my parents' reactions to the Cuban Missile Crisis. I remember exactly where I was the day President Kennedy was assassinated, and then his brother, and then Martin Luther King, Jr. I lived through race riots in the streets of our cities, and I was living in, in St. Louis at the time. Lived through 9-11, lived through an economic recession equal to, some say, even greater than the Great Depression. Social media is overrun by people fearful of not being liked or followed. Fear, you see, is a slippery fellow. It's often disguised as something else entirely, like bravado or authoritarianism in the workplace, maybe, in the home. Racial superiority. Oh, and what about religious superiority? Anything or anyone that seeks to look strong on the outside is most often fearful on the inside. Fearful of something that they may not even be conscious of. But it reads as something else entirely to the person on the receiving end. I've been, um, I've been wrestling with this passage, kind of stuck on this fear factor uh, for several days now. Many of you know, uh, some of you know perhaps, that um, oh, about 10 of us actually um, attended the New Room Conference in Nashville, Tennessee this past week. We left on Tuesday, we returned Friday evening. Next year I want everybody in this room to be there, all right? It's that important. It's that important. I'm not joking. <laughs> now, New Room. What, what is that? Well, let me just give you the key passage of Scripture as the jumping off point for not just this gathering, but for the movement itself. It's from Ephesians 5.14. Wake up, sleeper. 
rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Great awakening is the desired outcome. More of the Holy Spirit's presence, more and more of, of, a, of heart, for hearts of response to it. New Room is about becoming a global fellowship of sowers, S-O-W-E-R-S, sowers for a great awakening. And the primary postures are these, travailing prayer, banded discipleship, which I can explain later, and a humble passion for holy love. Those three things. So there we are. Some of the best preaching, teaching, worship I have ever experienced in my life. Soaking up the presence of the Holy Spirit. Seeking His outpouring on, in our lives and through our churches. And, and it was utterly exhausting in the very best ways possible. I pray that I never fully recover. Because I don't want to be the same pastor I was last Sunday. I don't want to be the same wife or the same mother or the same friend that I was last week. But throughout the three days of the conference, at various times of response and reflection, I kept hearing God ask me, first time I just kind of, you know, pushed it aside until Thursday night when I couldn't any longer. God was saying, so Deb, what are you afraid of? It's kind of like he was telling me that I had no business asking my church that question if I wasn't willing to deal with it first. And you'd think the answers would be obvious, right? Afraid we might not make budget. Afraid that our attendance might go in the wrong direction. Afraid that these beautiful university students would stop coming. Or, or that I might be afraid of not meeting people's expectations as their pastor, you know, everyone's expectations, to be super spiritual and uber compassionate and hyper innovative and really smart and in three places, places at once and always put together. And then I think, well, that's really actually my own expectation. That's my problem, right? This is the Greenville Church after all. Am I fearful of those things? Well, I, I, I have associated, you know, the whack-a-mole kind of game at a carnival? That's, that's kind of how those are. I mean, that rears up, whack, you know, oh, don't, don't go there, whack, you know, oh, you shouldn't feel that way, whack, you know? So I just, you know, work through those, right? Those are the easy ones, the obvious ones. You know, kind of like those fearful disciples who began looking out for themselves in response to Jesus' teaching, but what if people find me out? What if they realize, you know, how unqualified I am to stand here, at least from a human point of view? You see, self-preservation kicks in with more focus on the outward performance than the inward preparation. What if everyone hears me tell my friend this past Thursday night at the conference that I don't know what I'm, I really don't know how to do this? What would happen if my congregation had heard me say that? Or that this nasty little disease called myasthenia gravis that has decided to invade our home and my husband's body, you know what that fear does? It gives birth to a short temper and I get mad at him as if it's his fault. How inconvenient for me that he should be so afflicted. 
See, that's the paralysis of fear that sets in and drives me to places of self-preoccupation and preservation. I used to think that the disciples were just thick-headed. I am they and thick-hearted. Fear is a slippery fellow. It's an isolating force like nothing else. Think about the ways that it might be the underlying factor in your own life. Does the fear of being alone create kind of a wall around your heart, even to the point of, of keeping God at a, at a distance? Are there anxieties about health or employment or the future of a wayward child or a wayward grandchild? Does the growing alarm of a marriage on the brink of disaster drive you to kind of isolate yourself? Does the prison of addiction drive you deeper into denial, determined more than ever to look all put together on the outside while you're disintegrating on the inside? Fear plays dress up a lot. Fear has multiple personalities. All these and, and more strip life of pleasure and joy and make it very difficult to be wise and faithful stewards of the present moment and, and, and of the resources that God has entrusted us with. Jesus' response to our fears and anxieties is an invitation not to faith as merely an intellectual assent, as if believing in God somehow prohibits fear, but rather to faith as movement. Faith as taking a step forward, maybe just a baby step, in spite of doubt and fear. Faith as doing even the smallest thing in the hope and trust of God's promises. If you look back at the text for a moment, you'll note what follows the disciples' fear and, then, and, and Jesus' probing question that only exposes the depths of their anxiety. You see, here, here's what he does, which is, he typically does this. He just flips things on its head, right? He overturns the prevailing assumptions about power and security by inviting the disciples to imagine, just imagine this, that abundant life comes not through gathering power, but through displaying vulnerability. Not through accomplishments, but through service. And not by collecting powerful friends, but by welcoming children. He stands a child right in the middle of the gathering, and then to further cement his, his object lesson, he gathers that child up in his arms and says, whoever welcomes one of these children, in my name, welcomes me. See, even something as seemingly kind of insignificant as showing kindness to a child can speak into our fears. <laughs> Jesus understood the, the detour the conversation had taken following his second discourse on his passion. He understood how his closest of followers had somehow veered off track and into the ditch of self-preservation. Discipleship, following Jesus, isn't about accomplishments and power and security, but it's about vulnerability, even the vulnerability demonstrated in the life of a child. In this season of 
of loving dangerously, that very same vulnerability is required of all of us. Fear ultimately blinds us to what God is doing all around us. Not unlike how the disciples and corporate vision was clouded in those events leading up to the passion of Jesus. See, God created out of nothing. He made light from darkness and he raised Jesus from the dead and he is still at work in that same power, offering himself as the one who dispels all fear and keeps us from being overwhelmed by those fears as we move forward in faith. Faith. 